everybody. Hello. A couple things before we get going here. Um, uh, tomorrow night, men's ministry. Remember that? 7 p.m. in the room right behind me, the adult Sunday school room. And then, <clears throat> if you saw in your email this afternoon, we got a uh, uh, text, I guess you would call it, uh, from Uruguay uh, concerning Carrie Willoughby, one of our missionaries. And uh, so look at that on your email. I forwarded it to that. Uh, she's having some kind of medical issues and taking her to the hospital to get looked at. So we're going to stop and pray for her real quick all right, before we get going. Father and our God, we do pray for Tim and Carrie. Uh, pray for uh, whatever is going on with uh, Carrie, that you give wisdom to the physicians, that they would be able to uh, address uh, the issue and address it in a timely fashion. We pray for her health. Pray for grace for her and especially for Tim uh, as um, they're undergoing this uh, medical issue. So we just uh, pray wisdom. Pray for uh, mercy and grace. Thank you for them, their faithfulness, and uh, ask that you'd heal Carrie. Pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as you know, uh, for some time now, we've been going through a series here together in the evenings uh, that I entitled The Chronological Look at the Birth of the Savior. We've been looking at the life of the greatest person who has ever uh, entered into human history, the greatest event that's ever happened, uh, that being the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is uh, an amazing truth of all truths that never uh, becomes old. Uh, the essential foundational fact of Christianity, the essential doctrinal truth that affects the way that we live our lives, the way we think, the way we act, the way we process the world uh, around us and the events that we're a part of, the fact that God has become a man. We started looking at the history of Jesus Christ before his incarnation, uh, before he came into existence in the flesh. We looked at his pre-existence in the Old Testament. We looked at his royal lineage through uh, uh, Joseph, then his physical lineage through Mary, We saw the remarkable story of the angelic visitations uh, that gave an explanation for the child in the womb of Mary. And and throughout the history, or throughout the story, we've seen a number of individuals who have stopped and uh, praised God uh, for his mercy towards men because he has sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in the world. We saw Elizabeth do it, Mary do it, Zacharias, obviously, the angel, shepherds, uh, the elderly Simeon, and then the uh, old woman, Anna, all praising God, all thanking him for his mercy all thanking him for the fact that he's brought salvation to men uh, through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we saw the testimony of the prophets. Again, Old Testament, New Testament. We looked at the writers, Matthew and Luke. Uh, We spent a long time looking at them, again, establishing the fact and the identity of who Jesus is, that he is indeed the long-awaited promised Messiah. He is the King of Israel. He is the long-awaited Savior of the world, uh, the Son of David, right? Uh, and, uh, again, the child that Mary is bearing, uh, that she will bear, is no ordinary uh, child. Uh, again, uh, what people think of him, what people believe about him, uh, de- has eternal ramifications. Uh, uh, both Christ and the prophetic scriptures tell us that. And, again, as we talked about this morning, Christ repeatedly claims the fact that he is God come in the flesh. God come down from heaven, born of a virgin. And Jesus, in his own word, says, unless you believe that, unless you believe that I am he, you'll die in your sins. So the stakes are that high. Again, the things that Jesus say make him the most unique individual who's ever walked the planet. And again, his claims are either truthful or they're not. There's no in-between with him. So you have to make a decision. What will you do with him? What will you do with the person of Jesus Christ? And again, God in his kindness continues to give testimony after testimony after testimony concerning the reality of his son, because he wants people to know him. He wants people to know him. He wants people to come into a reconciled relationship through his son. And and again, the only way that you can do that is come to a proper understanding of the truth, a proper understanding of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, last time we were together, we were in Luke chapter 2. 
And we saw that great announcement from the from God through the uh, angels to the shepherds there in the field who are keeping watch over their flock by night. God sends the angel to herald uh, uh, as a herald to these uh, men. He suddenly shows up in the uh, in the darkness, and he has great great good news right from the throne room of God. And the angel told them, "Don't be afraid, because he was bringing good news for great joy, of great joy for all the people. For that in the city of David, that very day that has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord." And you remember the story. It wasn't enough that just one angel shows up without announcement. Without announce, uh, announcement, uh, God sends a number of angels to herald his blessing to men. The text in uh, Luke 2 says, Suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest on earth, peace among men with whom he is pleased. So we saw the shepherds in the story. They see that visitation of those angels. They make their way as quickly as possible to the place where uh, they were told that the angel would be, or the angel told them that the Christ would be found. And the, the shepherds, they go and they see for themselves and they go away glorifying and praising God for what they have seen, what they've heard about their Savior. And we saw again the fulfillment of the Old Testament law by the righteous couple, uh, Mary and Joseph, the mother and the, the father of uh, the, the, the child Christ. Uh, they take their son to the temple to be uh, circumcised as per law requires. They meet Simeon and Anna. Again, these two elderly people, a part of the faithful remnant that had been looking forward to and living in anticipation of a God fulfilling his promises, fulfilling his word in the Old Testament as he said he would, and he promised to send a Savior. In that text there in Luke 2 and 27, it says of the man Simeon that he came into the spirit in the temple uh, when the parents brought the child Jesus to carry out for him the circumcision of the law. He took him into his arms and blessed God and said these are just tremendous words. He said, Now, Lord, thou dost let thy bondservant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all your people, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of thy people Israel. Verse 38 says, That very moment she, meaning Anna, came up, she gave thanks to God and continued to speak of him to all those who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. So again, you have these two elderly people who've been waiting all their life, looking forward to, with great anticipation, uh, the coming of the Messiah, the arrival. And uh, they both have the privilege of seeing him, and Simeon has the wonderful... Uh, privilege of holding that child in his arms as God told him he would. So I told you what it really is. It's a testimony. It's a tremendous testimony, another testimony, because again, it once more establishes who Jesus really is. He is none other than God come in the flesh. He's the Savior, the only Savior of the world. He is the only man that uh, we have hope in, right? The only person uh, uh, that we can have hope in. And again, apart from him, there is no hope. He either is who he claims to be biblically or he's not. And if he is who he claims to be, God had come to the flesh to redeem mankind, to stand in mankind's stead, to take the punishment that is due us, then he provides us tremendous hope. We looked this morning at the fact of the resurrection, the spiritual resurrection, the physical resurrection, and we have hope because this one man, Jesus Christ, beat death. Tremendous. Every time I do a funeral, I just feel so sad for people who do not believe, who have not hope that there's someone who defeated death. We all need somebody who defeats death. Because we're all headed that direction. And so to scoff at it, what Jesus said this morning, don't marvel. Don't scoff at the idea that there's someone who has that kind of power because Jesus Christ has that power. History proves that fact to be true. Now again, Simeon and Anna, they're, they're looking for the testimony, they're looking for the consolation of Israel. They're, they're giving witnesses. The Old Testament uh, said that by the witness of two or uh, three witnesses, every truth, every fact is confirmed. 
And so again, you just have these repeated uh, evidences of testimony. And uh, when we were um, uh, towards the end of last time, I had you take your Bible and turn to Matthew chapter 2, and that's what I want you to do this morning. So you have the testimony of the, sh- the angels, the testimony of the shepherds, the testimony, again, Elizabeth and Mary, uh, the, the angel that came to them why the, uh, why, for the reason why the virgin was uh, with child. And again, you have these two elderly couples, and now you have another group that's going to give testimony. Now, I've got to tell you right up front here, there's a lot of information. And I worked hard, and I'm really struggling to try to condense it down because there's so much here that could be said. And I'll say some of it, but not all of it. So tonight we're going to have the wonderful privilege of seeing another group of people who come and give testimony to the fact that, again, Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. He is the King of Israel. And it really is a tremendous story of God's kindness. It's a tremendous story of God's mercy towards the world. And it's a tremendous story of a faithful man who gives witness to God's word. And then it's the results of that faithful witness. Now, the Jewish people as a whole are without excuse. They, they've been looking for, or they should have been looking for, the long-awaited Messiah. They, they've been told that he was coming. But in large part, they weren't. And they should have recognized him on the basis of the fact that he fulfills Old Testament scripture, uh, the word of God, when he showed up. But again, they didn't. At best, most of Israel was indifferent to the person of Jesus Christ, and a large portion of them actually held him in such contempt, such hatred, uh, they actually are going to seek to have him murdered, and they'll do that through the hands of the Romans. But in our story tonight, in our study, we're going to see Jesus get the recognition that he deserves as the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the one who has the right to rule, the one who deserves to be worshipped by all men, the one who should be and must be recognized and honored and heralded as the king of Israel. And he's going to have that uh, honor, uh, that uh, recognition from some Gentiles. They're going to come from a distant land, some guys called the Magi. And the Magi really represent the first fruits of the Gentile nations. Again, remember when God came to uh, Abraham, told him that he would be a blessing to the nations, right? A blessing to the world. So the, the Magi really represent the first fruits of the Gentile nations showing up in God's redeeming plan. As again, God has promised through Abraham to send mercy to the nations. And these men represent that mercy coming to fruition. So again, chapter 2 in the, in the book of Matthew, verse 1. And let me just read part portion of it, and then we'll work our way back through it. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. And when Herod the king heard it, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. And gathering together all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he began to inquire of them where the Christ was to be born. They said to him in Bethlehem of Judea, For so it has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called the Magi and ascertained from them the time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go make a careful search for the child. And when you have found him, report to me and I, that I too may come and worship him. And having heard the king, they went on their way, and lo, the star which they had seen in the east went on before them until it came and stood over where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And when they came to the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him, opening their treasures, and they presented him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned by God in a dream not to return 
to Herod, they departed for their own country by another way. Let's go back to the top again. Now, after, Herod, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, the Magi from the east arrived. So after Jesus was born, right, the text says he's born in Bethlehem of Judea. Bethlehem's a small little village, uh, really about five or six miles south of Jerusalem. It was at one time called Ephrata, uh, meaning place of fruitfulness. The name Bethlehem means house of bread, which is a fitting name for the one who's going to be born there, who is the very bread of life come down from heaven. Bethlehem is up on a gray limestone ridge, about 2,500 foot of elevation. The ridge uh, sits at, on the summit, and each end there's kind of a hollow uh, saddle, if you will, between them, and this is where Bethlehem sits, kind of in that hollow saddle, uh, cradled there between the two ridges. Bethlehem obviously has a long history in the nation of Israel. It was the place where uh, Jacob was, uh, would bury Rachel and set up a pillar beside her grave, Genesis 48, it's the place, Bethlehem is the place that Ruth lived when she married Boaz and Ruth too. But above all else in the history of Israel, uh, Bethlehem was the home in the city of David. And it was from this small village that the king would be born, the Messiah would come in fulfillment of God's promises that he would send a deliverer through the line of David. So the nation of Israel was awaiting David's great son to arrive. However, and just inexplicably, when the event occurred, no one noticed. Nobody noticed, nobody cared, nobody paid attention. Instead, again, of being born in the capital city of Jerusalem, just a few miles down the road, Jesus is born in this little nondescript village, this little small place. More likely, he's born in a cave that has been hewn out below the uh, hill, behind, behind, below the homes, or a little hewn-out spot in the side of the limestone where people kept their animals just below their houses. Now, some time has elapsed between Matthew chapter 1 and Matthew chapter 2. Because when you come to chapter 2, Jesus is no longer in the manger, but according to verse 11, he's where? He's in a house. Right? Magi came, to, came into the house and saw the child. Right? So time, some time has passed between the birth of Christ and the arrival of these men called the Magi, the wise men, who come from the, ch- the east to worship the child. How much time? I don't know. Somewhere between four to six months, perhaps. Some people say maybe a little longer. Historical records show that Herod died somewhere around the end of March or the beginning of April during the time of the lunar eclipse in 4 BC. So Jesus has been born some months previous to this historical event, which is going to play into the text here later in the half of the chapter when Herod asks to do away or seeks to do away with any potential rival. He has the children that are two years younger slaughtered. So whatever time event this is, the child is no longer a newborn. Some time has uh, passed. I told you last time that uh, Mary and Joseph, when they go into the temple, they offer two turtle doves, which is the offering of uh, uh, somebody who is very poor. Therefore, more than likely, again, they would not met the Magi who come from the east, bringing them gold, frankincense, and myrrh, because if they'd met them already, then they would have given, taken some of that and bought a better offering, but they don't because they don't have the money. So again, all indications are they have not met the Magi. Again, some time lapse between chapter 1 and chapter 2. Uh, I, uh, just as somewhat of a side note, I, I, I don't want to mess up your nativity scenes, but the biblical truth is the Magi weren't anywhere close to the manger that night. They're not there at the birth of Christ. There's a certain individual in our church who I greatly appreciate, so every time somebody puts up a manger scene around here, he dutifully makes sure that the um, Magi are across the room, which I... I'm thankful for because there's a whole lot of churches that don't do that because their magi are always out in the manger scene. 
I think to myself, it's not a big deal, but what in the world? If these guys don't know the truth, who in the world is supposed to know the truth, right? They come later. They come when they're in a house. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king. Now, look, we could speak about Herod for a long time, and I've literally read hours and hours of information on this guy. So what I want to do is my my best ability is try to give you a concise amount of information that I think you need to know about him that's helpful in in regards to the context of what uh, we're going to read here. To say that Herod is an interesting character would be a bit of an understatement. He was known as Herod the Great. Now, Herod is the name of the family, the family name of the ruling dynasty of Palestine at this time. Sometimes, uh, early on, he's known as Herod the First because there's four different Herods in the New Testament. So you've got Herod the First or Herod the Great. You have Herod Antipas. You have Herod Agrippa, as well as a guy named Herod Philip II. Sometimes he's referred to as Philip the Tetrarch in the New Testament. Herod the Great, the one in our text here, ruled from 30. 6 or 30, 37, 36 B.C. to about 4 B.C. And Herod the Great was not Jewish, but he's an Edomite. He's half Jewish, half uh, Idumean. Julius Caesar had appointed his father Antipater uh, to be the governor of Judea while it was under Roman occupation. And Herod I uh, had made himself useful to the Romans uh, as there was a civil war in Palestine, therefore they trusted him. He worked his way up to such good standing with the Romans that in 47 B.C. the Romans appointed him as governor over the rural area of Galilee. So the Romans had Antipater in Jerusalem and Judea and had his son Herod I controlling the rural areas of Galilee. In 40 B.C. after an uprising, Herod I <coughs> received the title King of Jews, uh, King of the Jews, and that's an important uh, little point of history to remember. Herod had gone to inform Rome of the situation and requested absolute authority for that area, and the Romans uh, gave him that. The Roman Senate gave him that authority and gave him a, uh, an army with the power to quell any kind of rebellion that would rise there. And finally, in 37 B.C., he puts an end to the rebellion, and then at that moment, he becomes, quote-unquote, king of the Jews. And that's a title that will re- remain with him until 4 B.C. when he dies. So again, Herod the Great was the only ruler of Palestine that ever succeeded in keeping peace in that area uh, that was constantly uh, under disorder. He was the only person to keep peace there and bring order. Now, on the positive side of this guy's life, he was a very capable individual. He had a number of qualities that made him the kind of ruler that Rome admired. He was somewhat of a a political genius. He was somewhat of a a uh, capable orator. He was a subtle diplomat. And he was a very decisive and skilled military leader. Again, he's the only ruler of Palestine that ever succeeded in bringing peace to that area. He was a great builder. He built the temple there in uh, Jerusalem. He began the project in 19 B.C. and constructed that uh, great terror, uh, uh, temple of Herod, uh, which he never saw completed because of his death. And, and then, of course, he, that temple was demolished completely by Titius Vespasian and the Roman army when they came in in 70 AD and conquered Jerusalem. Herod gave Jerusalem a theater, an amphitheater, a hippodrome, which is a racetrack, very fond of outdoor sporting events. He builds, obviously, a magnificent palace for himself. He restored the city of Samaria. He built the magnificent port city of Caesarea. He rebuilt and beautified many other cities of this area, including Antioch, Beirut, Damascus, Tyre, Sidon, Rhodes, Even Athens benefited from his ability to build and restore, and he was responsible for the fortress at Masada. At times, he heavily taxed his subjects, but he could also be very generous. 
In times of difficulty, he spent, suspended a tax collection upon the people to make things easier for him. In fact, in 25 BC, there was a tremendous drought and famine, and he actually melted down some of his old gold and some of his own gold plates in order to buy corn for the starving people, and he imported that uh, food and, and distributed clothing to the people during that time. The drought was so severe that some of the sheep, or most of the sheep, and goats perished, so there was no wool for them to uh, collect and make uh, winter clothing. So winter clothing had been hard to obtain. He's a very smart politician. He starts up a welfare program, which uh, obviously endures him to the people. Right? You just keep giving them free stuff away, and they're happy. He had twelve, or he had ten wives, twelve children. The most notable uh, wife was a woman ma- named uh, Mariamne. So he had some good qualities, but he has one terrible, fatal character flaw. He's insanely suspicious. He's absolutely paranoid. He trusts no one. He's threatened by everyone, and he's indescribably cruel. Herod had an insatiable lust for power and uh, the position that he held as the king of the Jews, and he would immediately deal with anyone and everyone who he believed was the least bit threat to that position. If he suspected that anyone was a rival power, that person was dealt with promptly, and they were eliminated. So he spent his entire life plotting the murder of people. Not just plotting the murder of people, but he actually carried those out. Someone has aptly referred to him as a murderous old man, and that's exactly who he was. He realizes that Jews regard him as a foreigner, since he's not a pure Jew. A pure Jew. Uh, therefore, he was very much aware of the fact that his subjects would rather be ruled by uh, a Hasmonean, who are the descendants of the original Maccabees. And if you remember history, in the intertestamental period, the Maccabees were a group of Jewish individuals who had fought for their freedom against the Greeks. And when the Romans came, Herod was afraid that these relatives of the Maccabees, the Hasmoneans, might attempt to do the same thing against him. They might rise up in rebellion. So he plotted the destruction of the entire house, the entire family of the group. He murdered every one of them. He put to death anyone and everyone who saw as a threat to his power, to his position, and he eventually murdered his beloved wife, Mariamne, and he murdered her mother, Alexandra, along with his brother-in-law, a guy named Astrobulus. Astribulus. Astribulus is the man that he appointed to the high priestly office. And he murdered his uh, brother-in-law because people were too fond of him. They liked him too much. But Herod wanted to make sure that the act of murder of his brother-in-law uh, was committed in such a manner that no one would ever be able to pin it on him or try to prove that the king was the one who ordered that murder. So this guy, Astribulus, is a <coughs> relatively young guy and he, along with many others, were invited to the Jordan River for a swimming party near Jericho, as the story goes. It was a very hot day, and first the king and the high priest, because of their position, they remain on the riverbanks because beneath their dignity to get in the water with the commoners. But Herod prevails upon Astribulus to go into the water. And there's some young men who had actually been appointed to the party for the specific purpose, according to the historian Josephus, to push the high priest underwater at the appointed time and to make it look like they're just playing and having one, having fun there in the water. So they're doing this, they play, you know, quote-unquote, and then at some point they hold him out of the water until he drowns. And of course, Herod provides a magnificent funeral, and in public he sheds a great amount of tears. Herod also murdered two of his own sons that Mariamne <coughs> had borne to him because he's afraid that they wanted his throne. And just five days before his death, he orders the execution of his third son. And in fact, Augustus, 
the Roman emperor at the time bitterly had said something along the lines that it's safer to be Herod's pig than it is to be one of Herod's sons. And it's kind of a little bit of a play on uh, words in the Greek because uh, our transliteration of the Greek of the word pig is H-U-S, hus, and the word son is H-U-I-O-S, right? So it's a little bit of play on words. It's safer to be a pig in Herod's house than it is to be a son in Herod's house. And just to give you a little bit more insight of this guy, if you didn't need, uh, needed more into his uh, diabolic cruelty, he's 70 years of age. He knows that he's near death, so he gives strict orders to have all the most distinguished citizens of Jerusalem rounded up so they could be uh, uh, arrested on some kind of trumped-up charges and, and imprisoned. Then he orders at the moment that he dies that they all be executed. And the reason that he wants them to be executed at the moment of his death is he's well aware of the fact that no one will mourn for him upon his death. Therefore, he was determined that some tears would be shed on the day that he dies, that there, was a mourn, there would be mourning in that city. So here's the guy who's in charge from a political level, right? He's a cruel, bloodthirsty, paranoid tyrant. He's a murderer. And he is, in, in the very literal sense of the world, he's a maniac. He's a maniac. He's insane. He's insanely jealous. And he's in charge when the Magi from the east show up in Jerusalem and saying, where is he who's been born king of the Jews? Verse 3 says, when Herod the king heard it, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. So Herod's extremely disturbed by this potential threat to his power. And you can imagine why all Jerusalem would be troubled with him because they knew this guy's mentality. They knew his murderous acts of bloodshed and they feared and they would wait for the inevitable reaction. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, the text says, Behold, Magi. Perhaps some of your um, texts say wise men from the east arrived, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Now, I want to stop and take a look at these guys. The Magi are the wise men, and I think you'll find this fascinating. This is really interesting. Who exactly are these guys? How many of these guys are there? Were there three of them, right? Isn't that where the song goes? We three king of Orion are, and et cetera, and so forth, right? Were these guys kings? Again, just exactly who are these guys? Now, as far as their names is, we don't know. But Roman Catholic Church does, because the Roman Catholic Church is into this kind of stuff, so you know they, they make up all kinds of things. But we don't know their names because the Bible doesn't tell us their names. All we know is these guys come from the East. We don't know their number because there's nothing in the text that says there's three. There could have been a lot of them. So what we're going to do is we're going to try to piece together some information that I've dug up from different places, see if we can get a better picture of who these guys are. Some information that we have here uh, in a limited form in Matthew, some information from the Old Testament book of Daniel, and then some writings, historical writings, from a guy named Herodotus and some other uh, ancient historians. So again, the text says, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, the Magi, or the wise men from the east, arrived in Jerusalem. Now basically, the Magi, or the wise men, were members of an eastern priestly group of people that were originally uh, associated with the Medes and Persians. You remember in history there have been four major world empires. First you have the Babylonian Empire uh, in the area east of Israel in the valley of the Tigris and Euphrates River. Then you have the second great world empire which is the Medes and the Persians, the Medo-Persian Empire. And this is the world empire at the time of Daniel. And eventually, the Medo-Persian Empire is conquered by Alexander the Great, so the world becomes under the domination of the Greeks. And then the fourth great empire is the Roman Empire. Now, if you remember back in Genesis chapter 12, God calls a man named Abram. Right? We know him as Abraham. He calls Abram out of Ur of the Chaldees. 
And many people would trace the origin of the Medes all the way back to this time, out of Ur of the Chaldees. So the Magi that come from this line of people are very ancient people. People who have their, their origin all the way back, not just to the time of Abram uh, or Abraham, but really all the way back to the Tower of Babel. Right? So they're very ancient people. In the Greek, the word magi, magios, uh, or magioi, depending on um, um, the number of them, that word magi is really not a translatable word. It's an untranslatable word. It's just, like, just a word that simply were, uh, refers to a group of people uh, from a certain tribe. That's really what it's talking about. The name is given by the Babylonians or the Chaldeans, the Medes, the Persians, others, wise men, uh, to the wise men or the teachers, the priests, the f- physicians, astrologers, seers, interpreters of dreams, soothsayers, sorcerers, etc. So it's this priestly group of people. These oriental wise men were very skilled in a variety of different areas, from astronomy and physical sciences with their supposed uh, ability uh, on the astrological level or the occultic level. Now, in these days, there wasn't a great deal of separation between superstition and science, perhaps just like today in our area of global warming, but I don't know that for a fact. There's not much separation between superstition and science. And these guys are interested in astronomy, and they're also interested in astrology. Right? Not just looking at the stars, but the guidance of the stars. That's astrology. So one's scientific, obviously astronomy is scientific, but astrology is superstition. Again, to believe that the lives of men are guided and directed by the planets. So this really comes out of Babel. It comes out of that time. And the Magi are the so-called scientists of their day. But again, if you look at them, they're really a religious group in their activity. They were very much the priests of their country. They were the priestly tribe that came out of the Medes and the Persians. And they're very much like, on a priestly level, they're very much like the Levitical priesthood in Judaism. Whenever there was a sacrifice that took place, the Magi were there. They had a perpetual flame in their altar, and they had a blood sacrificial system. They had a fire lit that burned that sacrifice, again, just like what was done in Judaism. So again, it's somewhat of a counterfeit religion uh, to uh, Judaism. But they were the pagan group throughout human throughout all of history that were involved not only in science but quote unquote religion, right? not just science religion but magic, uh, and not magic like magicians a guy pulling a rabbit out of the hat but sorcery. That's really the kind of the idea. That's a that's a related synonym, right? We say magic M A G I C and these guys are the magi M A G I right? These are the magi the sorcerers. So these guys were somewhat science, scientists, somewhat priests somewhat occultists throughout their entire history. Now, if you remember back in the history of Israel, uh, when Judah, uh, Judah was taken off into captivity, Babylonian captivity by Nebuchadnezzar, the Magi were there. They were a group of people, even at that time, that had been raised to a place of prominence within the Babylonian Empire because of their wisdom and knowledge and their intuition and their occultic so-called uh, ability and so on. And it was this group of Magi that came into contact with a specific uh, Jew by the name of Daniel a man who God himself elevated in the Babylonian Empire. So most likely through Daniel and other Jewish individuals in captivity, these magi were aware of the coming prophecies of the Messiah. And again, all through history, these people, this tribe uh, within this larger group called the Medes and Persians were of significance. They're significant during the Babylonian Empire. They're significant during the Medo-Persian Empire. They're significant in the Greek Empire, the Roman Empire. They always maintained this uh, tremendous place of prominence in the East. 
Now, it's very important to remember that uh, these people, they have a tremendous amount of political power, but, but again, they're uniquely priestly in function. And that's because of their unique supposed occultic powers, uh, their knowledge of astronomy, their knowledge of astrology, and so on. Right? So again, they're this kind of mix between science and uh, uh, fantasy, this, uh, this uh, uh, mix between uh, science and occultism. And they rose to a place of tremendous prominence. Therefore, they were given the name wise men. And throughout the ages, they were the ones who were always consulted about various issues that the kings and the rulers were trying to deal with. What to do, how to handle this situation. Uh, so they became the teachers and they became the instructors of the Persian kings. And again, starting with uh, the time of Nebuchadnezzar from a biblical historical standpoint, we see this group of people have been elevated to a place of advisors to the king. So they're tremendously powerful politically. In fact, I want you to take your Bible. I want you to turn back to the book of Daniel. I want you to go back to the book of Daniel. I want to just show you a few things out of Daniel. And I just want you to see these people uh, here in the context. I'm going to see, I want you to see how they work. I want, to see, I want you to see how they work, especially in the court of Nebuchadnezzar. Now, I don't have a lot of time, so I'm going to move through it through pretty quickly. If you can't stay up with me, that's fine. Don't worry about it. Just sit there and listen. And I'm not going to give you a lot of context or a lot of commentary. I just want to read it. Daniel chapter 1, verse 17. As for these four youths, God gave them knowledge and intelligence in every branch of literature and wisdom. Daniel even understood all kinds of visions and dreams. Then at the end of the days, which the king had specified for presenting them, uh, the commander of the officials presented them before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king talked with them, and all of them, out of all of them, not one was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered into the king's personal service. And as for every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king consulted them, he found them to be ten times better than all of the magicians or the magi, the conjurers that were already in his realm. And Daniel continued until the first year of Cyrus the king. All right, so Daniel is uh, elevating himself, or God is really elevating Daniel in the eyes of the king. Go to chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 2. Again, just very uh, quickly. Nebuchadnezzar has a dream, and it's a dream that troubles him greatly. Daniel chapter 2, verse 2. Then the king gave orders to call the magicians, or the, the magi, the conjurers, the sorcerers, the Chaldeans, to tell the king his dreams. So they came and stood before the king. Now the story goes on that King Nebuchadnezzar gets so infuriated with this group of people, he threatens their very life. In fact, he threatens to kill all of them, right? Because they can't interpret uh, uh, his dream properly. In fact, he wants them to tell him his dream. If you guys are so good at this stuff, you tell me the dream that I had, then interpret it. He wants to make sure that they're not charlatans, which, except for Daniel, they are. But that's beside the point. Verse 10, Daniel chapter 2, verse 10. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There's not a man on earth who could declare the matter of the king, uh, inasmuch as no great king or ruler has ever asked anything like this of any magi or any magician, conjurer, Chaldean, right? I not only want you to interpret the dream, I want you to tell me what the dream was, right? I want to make sure these guys aren't fakes. So again, magi, magicians, conjurers, uh, it's really this priestly tribe of people who have a prominent place. Again, it's not pull the rabbit out of the hat kind of a magician like we think today, 
But these magi, these a priestly tribe of people, supposedly who have this ability, this power to see visions and understand the future, to discern. Now here in Daniel 2, Daniel gets involved in the whole situation when he realizes the king sent out an edict to kill everybody, including himself, because he's now part of this group, because they can't give a proper interpretation of the dream. So Daniel says, hey, let me go to God and ask God concerning the situation, and if he desires, then he can make your dream known to you. Daniel chapter 2, verse 27. Daniel answered before the king and said, As for the mystery about which the king has inquired, neither wise men, conjurers, magicians, magi, or diviners are able to declare to the king. However, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he's made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will take place in the later days, and this is your dream and your visions while your mind was on your bed. Right? He's telling him the dream that he had that troubled him, that great statue, right? Uh, of uh, extraordinary splendor, the head of the gold, the head of statue is made of gold, the breast and its arms silver, its belly, thighs bronze, legs of iron, feet partially of iron, partly of clay. Right, a very important uh, uh, pr- prophetic dream that uh, Daniel gives an interpretation of. Turn over to chapter four, Daniel chapter four, verse seven. Nebuchadnezzar has a second dream. And Nebuchadnezzar is speaking here in the context, Daniel chapter 4. Then the magicians, the conjurers, the Chaldeans, again the magi, the diviners came in, and I related the dream to them, but they could not make its interpretation known to me. Verse 8. But finally, Daniel came in before me, whose name is Belteshazzar, according to the name of my God, and whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I related the dream to him, saying, O Belteshazzar, verse 9, chief of the magicians... Chief of the Magi, since I know that the Holy Spirit of the I know that the Spirit of the Holy Gods is in you, and no mystery baffles you. Tell me the visions of my dream, which I've seen, along with its interpretation. So again, while the Magi are high-ranking place advisors to the king, they could not get any real answer to Nebuchadnezzar's situation, but Daniel could, because God has given to Daniel extraordinary understanding, knowledge, intelligence. He's given him understanding of visions and dreams. God is elevating Daniel to this position. Daniel has been raised to the position that says in verse 9, O Belteshazzar, or Daniel, chief of the Magi. So he's been brought, this Jewish boy has been brought to a position where he's the chief of the magicians, chief of the Magi. Now the story goes on in chapter 5. In chapter 5, verse 6, You've got Belshazzar, who is now the king. He's come to the throne. And, and he's a Nebuchadnezzar's son. And you remember the story there? It's the mocking, the uh, orgy, the drunken orgy. And he sees the hand and the handwriting on the wall. Daniel chapter 5, verse 6. So the king here is Belshazzar. The king's face grew pale. His thoughts alarmed him. And his hip joints went slack. And his knees began to knock together. The king called aloud to bring the conjurers, the Chaldeans, the diviners, the king spoke and said to the wise men of Babylon, Any man who can read the inscription and explain it, its interpretation to me shall be clothed with purple and have a necklace of gold around his neck and have authority as a third ruler of the kingdom. Verse 8, Then all the kings and the wise men came in, but they could not read the inscription made known as it, uh, or make known its interpretation to the king. Then the king Belshazzar was greatly alarmed. His face grew even paler, and his nobles were perplexed. Verse 10, the queen entered the banquet hall because of the words of the king and his nobles. The queen spoke and said, O king, live forever. Do not let your thoughts alarm you or your face be pale. Verse 11, there is a man in your kingdom who is, uh, in whom is a spirit of the holy gods. 
And in the days of your father, illumination, insight, and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, appointed him chief of the magicians, or chief of the magi, conjurers, Chaldeans, and diviners. Verse 12, let Daniel now be summoned, and he'll declare to you the interpretation. So again, Daniel finds himself in a unique position, right? He is chief of over the magi. He is chief over this priestly order, this priestly group. But Daniel is a man who's devoted to the true and the living God. He's not a phony. He's not a charlatan. He's a man of God who very early on in his captivity in Babylon determined that he would not defile himself with those things which were not of God, right? Or those things were not honoring to him. So what does a man of God do who finds himself chief of the magicians or chief of the magi, the conjurers, the Chaldeans, and the diviners? What does a man of God do? He gives them all he knows about the knowledge of the true and the living God. He tells him all he knows about the truth. How do you know that, somebody asks. Simple. Because that's what godly people do. That's what godly people do in ungodly situations. They tell people around them the truth. They want to give them hope. They want to give them a knowledge of the truth. So this is what Daniel does. And in addition, when Cyrus finally gives the Jews permission to go back into their land, the majority stay in Babylon. They intermarry, and through that intermarrying, uh, and uh, they remain there from that point on in the history of the Babylonian people and the Medo-Persian Empire. They're people in all kinds of high-ranking positions that have Jewish blood, if you will, running through their veins. So the whole area has some knowledge of the truth and some knowledge of the coming of Messiah. In fact, it has been suggested by some that Daniel was so good at winning the Magi over to the truth and convincing them of the error of what they thought and the truth of the true and the living God and the coming Messiah, that that is why they conspired against him and plotted to put him into the lion's den. So here's a group of people. The Magi, this priestly order that keep their place, their prominence, their influence, and no doubt they themselves are influenced by such godly men as Daniel and, again, godly Jews in the dispersion. Now, throughout the years, obviously, uh, the truth, no doubt, becomes corrupted, as it tends to do, but at least there's a vestige of truth. There's a, a, a remnant of biblical understanding probably mixed into this religion. So by the time we come here to Matthew, we don't know how much they knew. We don't know exactly what they knew. But somehow along the line, enough information was passed on to this priestly group of people. Enough truth had been maintained, God's truth, that they knew Messiah was coming. That's because God in his kindness had providentially placed Daniel in their path some 600 years before the birth of Christ. So that he could be at the right place at the right time so he could become the ruler of the Magi so that they might be exposed to the truth, the true and the living God, so that they might have hope in their culture, in their group, right, of the salvation that is coming through the promised Messiah. And some 600 years later, when this baby is born, these men who come from this priestly line from the east still have hope, and they come and find their way to the house where the child was. So that's kind of the backdrop on the Magi. So now go back to the book of Matthew. And by the way, during the uh, New Testament, at the time of the early church, the Magi are still there, still present. You see a couple of different encounters with them in the New Testament. We won't look at them, but I'll just tell you, there's a couple of them. They're corrupted, but they're still Magi. Acts chapter 8, verse 9, a man called Simon Magnus, 
Simon the Magi. Acts chapter 13 is a man named Bar-Jesus. Uh, and they call him Bar-Jesus in Acts 13.6. In verse 8, they call him Elimaeus, the magician. Elimaeus, the sorcerer. And Elimaeus, again, means wise man. It's just another, both of those terms, Magnus, Elimaeus. Again, these, these uh, uh, Babylonian um, priests, right? These seers, these interpreters of dreams, magi. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the Great, or the days of Herod the king, behold, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. And when Herod the king heard it, he was troubled. And let me tell you what, you bet he was troubled. The Magi are known as the Oriental kingmakers. And they've just arrived in Jerusalem. Politically at the time, Rome is in charge, that's true. But there's always this fear of what's going on in the east, in this Babylonian, old Babylonian territory, that was known then as the Parthian Empire. And again, if you were to look at a map and you were to find Italy, right, find Rome, and you move to the east, you have the Mediterranean Sea, you've got a big desert area, right, the land of Judah and Galilee, and this empire is even further off uh, to these, this Parthian Empire. It was always a threat. It was always a point of anxiety to Rome. They just never felt secure about this group of people who were always fighting them. And right in the middle between Rome and this empire to the far east, you've got this little pit of land called Israel. And history tells us that at the time of Christ, there was a ruling body in this Parthian the empire to the east made up entirely of magi, whose, again, responsibility was to choose and to raise up a king. In fact, history tells us that a king in this empire could not even come to the throne unless they sat under the teaching of this group of people known as the magi. So again, the Magi are rightly called the kingmakers because that's what they did. They not only gave advice to the king, but they actually raised them up. They're the trainers. They trained the kings up. They're the ones who identified and qualified and set the next king upon the throne of the Persian Empire. Now, there's something else behind the scenes that's really interesting here in this story historically in this time of Matthew's story, something that even the Roman uh, historians acknowledge. For some reason at, at this time, there was a belief that there would be a man who would come out of Judea to rule the world. That was the expectation. There was an expectation among men that from Judea, someone would come and rise up and be a world ruler. In fact, Taxius, uh, who is a Roman historian, says this, a persuasion existed in the minds of many that some ancient writings of the priest contained a prediction that about that time an eastern power would prevail and that a person proceeding from Judea would obtain dominion. So there's this impression, this thought, this feeling in the air that there's a, rural, a world ruler coming out of Judea who would again acquire a universal empire. Tatius says this, Suetonius, another Roman historian, says this, uh, says the same thing along with the Jewish historian Josephus. So among the men at the time, there's this common belief in the whole region that from the country of Judea there's going to be a governor. Someone who's going to rise up. Someone who's going to rise up and be the governor, the, the ruler of the, all the inhabited earth. So that was the sense that was going on. Again, not just among the Jewish people, but amongst the entire known world. In fact, this is interesting. When Octavius was born, who later becomes known as Julius Caesar, at the time of his birth, listen, at the time of his birth, the Roman Senate declares that the Lord of the world has been born. Hmm. And sometimes it's translated as the ruler of the world. 
So they get it. They see there's something going on. And they think Caesar Augustus Octavius is that guy, perhaps. Later on in Caesar's life, there's altars all over the place that are inscribed to the divine Caesar Augustus with the inscription often referring to him as, quote-unquote, the savior of the world. And, around this time, there's a Roman poet named Virgil who's writing about the dawning age, the golden age of the Roman Empire. So throughout this entire area, throughout the entire world, there's a sense of great expectation. There's a tremendous feeling that someone's coming. Someone's coming to be a great ruler, a great leader. Someone who's coming to be the savior of the world. So you ask the question, where'd that anticipation come from? The answer I have is I have no idea. I have no idea. I know that Galatians 4 and 4 says, when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. So somehow the time was full. Somehow the time was right. This electric sense of anticipation that could be felt by the people, this is the time Christ comes because God sends him. Now the Magi have this information. They have it from Daniel. They have it from God's word. That somehow, again, somehow God's working in their hearts. They know that God is going to fulfill his word because God always keeps his promises. And they find their way to Jerusalem, which is the capital city of Israel, which is probably a good starting place. It's a logical place to show up. Now, if that's not enough, this is like one of these soap operas, man. you got like scene after scene after scene after scene, right? If that's not enough, at the same time all this other stuff's going on, the Persian Empire is without a king because the Persian king had been deposed. And Herod knows that. And not only does Herod know that, but at this moment, when these fellows show up, Herod's army is not present. They're gone. They're off on a mission. So again, this eastern Persian Parthenian Empire always skirmishes to the, to the west, right? Always pressuring Rome. And really had a desire to return to a, a position of prominence in the, world, in the world's power of order. You got Galilee right here in the middle, and Herod supposedly the king over this region. So there's this air of excitement, this air of political and military conflict. There's again a sense of a coming world ruler from Judea. And there's all of this stuff going on in the background. And I say all of that so that you get an understanding of what Matthew says when he says words we read and we just read over top of them. Matthew 1, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold. Big exclamation mark. Behold. The Magi from the east arrived saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Yeah, I better behold it. There's a lot of stuff going on here. There's a lot of stuff in the background, a lot of anticipation of a coming world ruler. There's political and military pressure and tension. Again, it's no ordinary day. Right? So, so Matthew says, behold, he's trying to give you a little sense of the wow factor of what's going on here. So it really could be, remember in the old days in the newspapers when we had newspapers, and, and they used to write things in bold headings across the top of the newspaper? That's really what this is. You could have the title, Behold, the Magi from the East have just shown up. It's shocking. It's front page headline news. Behold, the Oriental kingmakers have arrived. And not just three of them. Not just three of them on the back of some old, dying, dusty camels. More than likely, there's a whole lot of them. More than likely, they're being escorted by the Persian cavalry mounted on horseback. 
So it's an impressive sight. It's not a little event. It's not we three kings of Orianar. This is front page headline news. Behold, magi from the east have arrived. What do they want? Well, they say we're looking for him who's, where is he who's been born king of the Jews. And they were saying that. And the idea behind the word saying is not that just they were just saying it one time. They were repeating it over and over and over and over again. Everywhere they go, they're asking over and over again the question, where is he, where is he, where is he who's been born king of the Jews? So this is an issue. Why are they here? Why are they looking for the one who's born king of the Jews? Why are they looking for him? Why are they asking this kind of question, or looking for a king, especially when Herod the king standing right in front of them? Now again, were these guys looking for a political leader? No, I don't think so a bit. They say by their own testimony they've come to do what? To worship. Come to worship him. Right? So I think these people are genuine, God-seeking, genuine uh, Gentiles uh, looking for the Messiah. But Herod doesn't know that. All Herod sees is a real threat. And again, these magi come from the east to find he who has been born king of the Jews so they might worship him. Now, I'll bet you that they thought when they showed up that the people of Jerusalem would be just as excited about the coming king, the king of Israel, as they were, their birth of their king. But when they show up, the people of Israel could care less. Blinded by unbelief. The Bible says in the book of John, he came to his own, and his own what? Received him not. So instead of finding the people as excited as they are about the new coming king, what they find is a murdered parent or murderous paranoid maniac named Herod who's on the throne, who they'll find out later wants to destroy the child. And the rest of the city is utterly indifferent to the whole event. I mean, these guys have come a long way. They've ridden hard to find he who has been born king of the Jews so that they could worship. Because... Again, God in his providential goodness, God in his providential kindness, God who's in control of all events, has placed a faithful man back in their history at just the right time and just the right place to give these people an enduring hope. A man named Daniel, a man who loved God, a man who loved the truth, a man who obviously told these people the truth of God and his kindness, his love for the nations, his promise to send the Messiah, the King, the Savior of all mankind, because God has a desire to be merciful to the nations, merciful to men. Now God is using these people, these Gentiles from Persia, to acknowledge or to give testimony, just like everybody else in our story, testimony to that which Israel won't do. That the child born here is no ordinary child. That he is indeed the King of Kings. He is the King of the Jews. So, the most famous kingmakers in the entire world come into Jerusalem. They want to bow before him. They want to worship him, who is the king of kings and the Lord of lords, the, God, the one who is God in the flesh. Why? Because he deserves that. He deserves our full, utmost, total worship and praise. Behold, the Magi from the east, they arrived. They say, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? We saw a star in the east. We come to worship him. And Herod the king heard it. He was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. When Herod the king heard it, he was troubled. And again, you bet he was troubled. Let me tell you what. And all of Jerusalem, the word troubled there, terasso means agitated, moving to and fro, uh, uh, to take away one's calmness of mind, disturbed, com- disturbing one's composure, uh, stir up, strike a spirit of fear and dread. I mean, Herod is literally shaking in his boots. He's terrified along with all Jerusalem, the text says. 
Why are they scared? Because they know him. They know his character. They know that when Herod sees this, he's going to be so upset. They know his murderous tendencies. They know that blood's going to be shed by this madman because he does that to anyone who attempts to usurp his position as the king of the Jews. And of course, sadly, they're correct. It's coming. So again, I don't think these guys, these magi, are coming for political reasons. Even with all the stuff that's going on in the world, something that Herod, again, doesn't recognize. He's not aware. He doesn't know their motives. He just knows these guys have showed up for the East. He knows who they are. They see, he sees them as a very serious threat. And he's not going to take the threat lying down. So even now, this perverted, murderous mind is plotting a plan. Now, Herod should have known their motives because they told, by their own testimony, their motive. And again, these men have not come to find a political ruler to sit upon the throne of the East. They've come as Gentiles, again, sent by God to expressly do what Israel won't do. To rightfully acknowledge that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Messiah, that he is the King of the Jews, that he and he alone is the one who has the right to sit on David's throne. Where is he? He's been born King of the Jews. We saw a star in the east. We've come to worship him. Uh, Proskuneo, we've come to bow down, to kiss the hand, to fall on our knees, to express profound reverence, to kneel, to prostrate, to do homage. And again, all of those are only reserved for God alone. We've come to worship God. And again, the Magi are saying all over the place, we've come to worship him. We've come to make known the fact that, again, this is no ordinary child. He's God incarnate. He's the Messiah, the King of Israel. He's the long-promised, awaited one. Through the prophets to the nation of Israel. Where is he? Where is he? He's been born King of the Jews. Boy, and can you imagine the response of the Magi? They went all over the place, meeting all kinds of people who are utterly indifferent to this whole matter. They must have encountered a number of people when they repeatedly asked that question, where is he? The number of people must have said, what in the world are you talking about? Don't you realize i got more important things to do than this? I get home and watch TV, see what's going on in the political world. I get home to watch the movie that I'm streaming on Netflix. What are you talking about? King of the Jews. When they're asking all these people, and nobody has any idea what he's ta- they're talking about, they must have wondered in their own hearts, what in the world's going on with these people? What's wrong with them? Where's the excitement? Where's the joy? And we've got on horses and come a long way to worship him, to worship the king, and no one here seems to care. Not only do they not seem to care, and no one seems to know anything about him. Where is he has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship. Well, what about the star? What's that all about? Commentators, as you would imagine, they're all over the place on that one. I'll tell you this much tonight, must have been something pretty spectacular going on. I mean, again, this is the most spectacular event in all of human history. God becomes a man. It's the greatest story ever told. You read the story, and there's the supernatural and the spectacular all over the story. You've got miraculous births. You've got heavenly sent visions and dreams. You've got angels showing up, praising God. And now you've got a star, all pointing to the fact that this is no ordinary event. And the child is no ordinary child. That's as far as I got. Tried to make it through the whole text, but you'd have to be here another hour or two. So I thought I'll stop right there. You'll forgive me. And Lord willing, I'll be back next week and finish it up. Try to finish the series, all right? 
Our Father and our God, we just stand amazed at your mercy, your grace. We stand amazed at your providence as you work all these events in history and you move the nations and men and men's hearts and you work everything out to the praise of your glory so that men might honor and worship the Son. Again, we are just uh, in awe of you, in awe of your power, in awe of your love and your kindness and your mercy to men. That we're great sinners in need of a great Savior, and you sent him out of your mercy. The Lord Jesus Christ, the sinless one, he who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him through his substitutionary sacrifice. We love you. We thank you for a great day of worship. We praise you in Christ's name. Amen.